It's been a busy week. It's good that the COVID stuff is starting to wind down. And I know a lot of people listening around the country and around the world are starting to feel a little bit better. At least I hope you're feeling a little bit better. Um, And I hope that um, things in your life are good. You know, I've I've given thought to so many different things this past week. um, And I wanted to share a little bit with with my thoughts with you. Um, Because as I I really need to learn to take notes. But um, one of the thoughts that came across my mind about the Arantia book and how it all ties in. And I've been getting a lot of wonderful emails from people who listen to the podcast and have some feedback. One gentleman and I have been talking a lot about the early days of the, the revelation and what that was all about and how interesting it is. And I got some great feedback on my interview with uh, the gentleman who runs the foundation, Mo Siegel, who was gracious enough to stop by and, and share some of his insights. I'm very happy about that. I've been bouncing a lot on Truthbook. You know, according to Mo, Truthbook is the the most popular Urantia book website. Isn't that interesting? Um, So a couple of things. One is I read a great article earlier this week, and I think it kind of defined for me a little bit about what the ideological struggle is and the role that the Urantia book may play in helping to sort out the mess, uh, the, the current modern mess, the problems that we have in our world today. And um, much of it, it wraps around two great philosophies. One is uh, exalted humanism, which is basically um, micromanaging, you know, humans, humanity's incessant need to, to want to micromanage. You know, they, they want the brotherhood without the fatherhood if you know what I mean. They want the brotherhood, they want the globalization, but they want to do it without God. And, and the Arantia book tells us that you can't, you can't have a society without God. It's not possible for human beings to enjoy that fellowship unless there's a commonality. One of the great things about the American system is the Constitution, and only because it says this, is it make the Constitution such a profound document is that it, it acknowledges that we are endowed by our Creator. See? And that's an important distinction because it takes the power of uh, the seat of power and moves it from a, a, govern, or a governing institution, say a church or a political party or a theocracy, and it rests the power back to the people. It gives power back to the people. And the government or any governing body is really represented best when it represents a high order of thinking. Um, and we don't have a lot of that. You know, case in point, you know, talking about COVID, think about the messaging that's coming out now. You know, maybe the masks aren't as important You know, there might be herd immunity now. Thank you, by the way, to our unseen angels uh, who obviously had a big part of this, I'm convinced. And everybody thanks Mother Nature about, you know, the Omicron variant because it was a highly contagious yet far less deadly virus. And what it's done 
is it has inoculated people at a much faster rate so that if you do get COVID, maybe Delta or the original, uh, it may not affect you as much because you'll have developed a nice immunity system. And that in part and parcel comes from our brilliant life carrier sons who work tirelessly for eternity in laboratories above and beyond this planet to make the kinds of immune systems that we have. And so thank you to the Life Carrier Sons, and also thank you to our sister, our government of, of angelic coordinators who work to bring people together to solve problems in the way that they do it. And, and no doubt in my mind, did you know that, um, this is an interesting little tidbit, but in South Africa where the Omicron was first detected and there was a a fairly uh, reputable doctor who discovered the variant and reported it to the world. And she said very clearly, the good news is, the bad news is it's very contagious. The good news is you hardly even notice it because it's, it's a very weakened strain of the coronavirus. So it will, it will help bring about natural immunity in a lot of places, which it has done, but it won't be as fatal it doesn't mean it isn't fatal but it won't be as fatal as what we saw with delta and certainly the original covid virus so but my point to the story is that there were people who who told her don't tell anybody that it's less fatal you know you don't have to mention that part just mention that it's highly contagious but don't mention that it's less fatal because then people will get the wrong idea and they won't get their vaccines and so forth and so on. So when I heard that, I, that's, that's human failing right there. We've seen a lot of human failing and we're continuing to see these great divisions between people over this vaccine. And this vaccine, by the way, uh, today it's the vaccine. Tomorrow it could be something else. It could be climate change. It could be, you know, whatever it is, whatever the issue might be, people are going to find a way to heavily politicize it so that they're basically two tribes. And this is the way humanity works. When you read the Urantia book and you read about, you know, the, the, the progressive governments that we've had and the not-so-progressive governments that we've had over the eons of time, you know, the truth is, is that where we are today is that we have two ideologies. One, which premises the fact that we are endowed by our creator and we are spiritual beings and therefore our life has spiritual merit. And we have the other end of the coin, which is this is all random causation, that there is nothing else beyond this earth that we should even speculate about since we can't prove and we should just live our lives accordingly, making the best choices we can, and we have to govern ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with that philosophy as long as it doesn't lead to tyranny. Because tyranny is the great oppressor of the human spirit. Even though you can't extinguish the human spirit, as many, many works of religious faith tell us, they all certainly try, because when people have that spirit in them, they get irritated when they're told what to do. They get um, Some of us, not all of us, some of us prefer safety over liberty, but that's a different discussion. I believe that the Urantia book is firmly supportive of the kind of civilization 
where we have true representative government, just like we do in the Maranche spheres, just like we do on the capital spheres, just like we do on on Salvington. There are, if you read the Urantia book's description of how the governments are set up, not only on the local level, but on the system level, and even even on the level of, of Uversa, it is representative. You know, we think of the Trinity in our own government, but it really does sort of reflect the Trinity of deity. It's a combined, you know, these three legs of our government, the judicial, executive, and representative branch, are three equal powers. And that is truly, I mean, the, the Arantia book actually says that that system of government best reflects the way things are in the future future state. So we're heading in the right direction, but we're having conflicts along the way, and there are ideological struggles that at the root either lead us closer to light and life, or they lead us away from light and life and confusion. And, uh, and that's why I think the Arantia book, to me at least, is an important document, because it, it gives us insight, not only into, say, how another planet operates, which we've talked about, government on a neighboring planet. It talks about how the Caligastia 100 tried to introduce the basic premises into early civilization. So we know there's a right approach. Uh, we also know from the way that it describes the way that they teach in the afterlife, how they have, you're always willing to help the person just behind you. That's basically the running theme. You learn, you teach. You learn some more, you teach. And you're always teaching. You're always lending a hand to the person. It's like a chain, you know, like kind of like best illustrated by what's happening in their southern border, their border where you have people that, that you've got one person holding his hand to another person to another person, and it creates a chain by which each person can be helped along by the person in front of them. And I think that might be a good approach to the Arantia book. You know, the other day I was doodling, uh, you know, just trying to write out some things as how I would describe, you know, the grand universe, just doodling along. And I thought, you know, I remember this gentleman, um, Khan. I don't know if you've ever heard of Khan Academy, but it's a very successful YouTube school now. And it started out as an idea of an uncle trying to teach his niece you know, chemistry, and she was in high school, and he's a very smart man, very learned uh, man, this gentleman. And so he would send her YouTube videos, 15-minute videos, teaching her stuff. And I thought, boy, that would, that would be such a great technique to teach if we had just classes where experienced Urantia book readers could teach inexperienced Urantia book readers. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Because the truth is there are a lot of people, and I get emails from a lot of people who um, say, you know, I've just started learning about the book. There's a lot of things I don't, I don't understand. And man, when I hear that, you see that on Truthbook too in the forum. What does this mean? What does that mean? And then you have people who write. It's such a great way of, of sharing the information and the revelation. Don't you agree? So it's just one of the, the things that I've thought about. Um, 
one of many of things is how can we be better stewards to the Urantia book? What is it that people are really dying to know? Or what, everybody's different. Everybody has different likes and dislikes. Everybody has different goals. Everybody has different perceptions. So it's hard to know if there is a one-size-fits-all approach to the right methodology methodology of sharing the Arantia papers. And my feeling is it starts with questions. When people start asking questions, and this is why I encourage people to write the show, write the show if you've got a question. So we're going to take a, a brief break, then we're going to come back, and then I'm going to talk about some of the questions that we've gotten from listeners who listen to this podcast. We'll do that in just a moment here on the Urantia Radio Podcast. So once again, welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast, where we talk about the fifth epical revelation. You know, recently I had an opportunity to read Dr. Sadler and the Urantia book, which is a book written in 2014 by Sue Oliva. It did receive a fair amount of criticism because it, it dares to hypothesize that the Urantia book may have been uh, partly or wholly or uh, channeled by, channeled meaning channeled, you know, people talk about channeling. Do you know what channeling is? Channeling is when people will somehow have a spirit sort of communicate through them. And uh, Sadler is a debunker of that. That's one of his reputations. Dr. William Sadler, the man who sort of orchestrated and coordinated the revelation to such where it eventually uh, ended up being the Arantia book. Um. And so Sue Oliva's book is very good. It's really, really good. I mean, for many years, I'll tell you one reason I liked it. She explains the Urantia book better than anybody else. There are a couple of chapters where she gets into William and Lena and eugenics, something that's obviously very, very uh, important to Oliva. Although I, I have a different perspective, not completely un, undifferent or indifferent to hers. But perhaps one day she and I can have a conversation and I could put her mind to ease about some of the things that she asserted. But nevertheless, it didn't take away from the her presentation. And in fact, she did a very good job, I think. Clearly, she understands the importance of the Urantia book. And, and this podcast, by the way, isn't meant to be a critique 
I'm just bringing it up because when I was reading it, uh, it it brought to light a little bit about Bill Sadler Jr., which I do wish to discuss because I'm reminded, thanks to Oliva, that he was a pretty important figure during the early days of the Arantia book and the publication, and he had an unusual life, and he died, sadly, long before his time. Um, and he didn't have the easiest life either, but his optimism and his charm. And in a little while, I actually have some excerpts from Bill's speech from 1958 at one of the Arantia book study group meetings, and he did a series of them. He sort of took it on the road, and I... And I uh, saw some of his quotes in Oliva's book, which one of them brought me to tears. I might actually read it to you, and it might actually bring you to tears. And it has to do with his explanation of certain things in the Arantia book that really grabbed him. And uh, I'll find the audio. Maybe the next, I'll just take some great audio from him, and I'll do like a full thing on some of the... because. You know, part of the challenge of the Arantia book for most people, including myself, is that it's so dense and it's so compact that it's it's almost like being overwhelmed. You know, and because of the, our status as human beings, as evolutionary humans, it takes a little while to read something and fully grasp what's being communicated to you. You sort of sense it. You can see that the spirit of truth is trying to help you recognize it as as valid, as a valid concept. For example, when they go in, when in the early parts of the book where they talk about God's nature and how he can be omnipotent and omniscient, and he can be all of these things, right? And sometimes it's, whoo. It's very complex. It doesn't mean to be, but they're just sharing with us as much as they think that we can understand about the nature of of God and of deity. And so a lot of us, when we read the Urantia book in their early years, we don't have somebody to bounce off of. It's not like you could take the book to somebody like a, a local pastor or a minister and say, hey, can you help me through this? And and if you don't know anybody if you don't know anybody that reads the Arantia book like me, I mean, I knew a few people, uh, you're, you're sort of on your own. So Bill has this, Bill Sadler Jr., the son of William Sadler, has not only a great character about him, but he reminds me a lot of the way uh, certain interviewers, like when I listen to him, he reminds me of a talk show host. And since I'm somewhat familiar in that arena, I find him entertaining and I think, man, this guy would have been a great talk show host, right? But let me, just for example, and I again, I thank Sue Oliva for bringing this to light. I would like to formally invite Sue on the radio program, the, the podcast. I can get a hold of her. I may try to do that today. Uh, because she did a terrific job. Again, if you don't know anything about the Arantia book, this is a this her book. Although I I wish there were two chapters that she would remove for further study, but as a whole, in its totality, she does a great job at presenting the book and presenting the arguments for why the book is is an important revelation, uh, and and talks about the origins of the book. 
She has a theory about the origins, just like Ernest Moyer had a theory based on a lot of research. Uh, certainly Larry Mullins. A lot of people have researches, but at the end of the day, even the revelators say, we don't know for sure how this process came to be. And Bill Sadler really explains it well. And I'm going to find what he said because it's written down somewhere. I might even be able to find the audio for it. And he explains exactly, the for those who care, he explains how he thinks the process of the Arantia book was performed in the production of the original documents, the handwritten documents. Because those were the things that appeared for those who are into the origin, the Apocrypha. So everybody debates, well, where did, who wrote the papers? So anyway, uh, but here's Bill's description of his experience of God. And it's tremendously great. And then we'll go over to a couple of emails that we got from listeners, and I want to try to tackle a couple of those while we have some time today. So Bill Sadler Jr.'s description of his experience of God as it is explained in the Arantia book. He says, listen, even in this life, you can get a feeling for it, you know? I live with a feeling of the flavor of God. Not having been raised in a church, I may impress you characters as being a very unpious guy. It's simply because my experience with God doesn't happen to flow in normal channels. I can taste the universe father. And to me, that's a very ordinary thing. It amazes me, actually, that most people don't have this flavor. But to me, that's just as common and ordinary a thing as the fact that I can feel gravity acting on the mass of my body to give me that feeling of weight, you know? Just as ordinary to me, God is just as plain and simple as dried apples and rainwater. And why make a big fuss about it? This is a normal, natural human experience. And I'm continually surprised when I find lots of people say they don't have this experience. Now, if no other human being agreed with me, I would decide I was paranoid. But I wouldn't change my conviction. I can't. I got that feeling before I ever read these papers, and I, and I got it just before I was introduced to them. One day I sat down and wrote my mother a long letter asking her what she and father believed. When I started that letter, I wasn't sure when I finished that letter. I knew. I've known ever since. And when I started that letter, I wasn't sure. And when I finished the letter, I knew. And I've known ever since. And I didn't have any cold sweat or anything else. I can't tell you at what point in the writing the letter I discovered that I knew. It was a very common discovery, completely free from emotion. This realization was not born during the simple writing of that letter. I discovered it. There had been a borning, I suspect, for about a year before that. So you see how he's explaining and, and and you know what's true? I have that same feeling my whole life. I, I've, I may have said this before. Maybe you feel this way. Maybe you don't. But I've always had a kinship with God, ever since I was about seven or eight years old. It was as natural as pie. It was like talking to a friend. And I know what had happened. It happened because I had a church counselor tell me that God told her that I was special. And when you're about nine years old and you hear that, uh, you you take it on merit. Why would this lady be lying to me? What does she have to gain? What am I going to give her, right? 
but she believed in, in the Lord, and she said something that was instrumental. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't, but it was said at the moment that I needed to hear it, and it forever settled that question. So I didn't have that question growing up. I didn't have that doubt in my mind. I didn't walk around wondering what it's all about. Does life have any meaning? I already knew that it did. That's what made it so exciting. I had a, a lot of imaginary stuff when I was young, like 12 to 13, where I, 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 I pretended sometimes I was on the great stage of life. And I felt like I was there to perform a duty, you know? Do you have that feeling? But that's all wrapped around the notion of feeling special, feeling like you are part of the universe, that you are not an orphan. You know, they say that one of the things that the Spirit of Truth provides is it eliminates that orphan feeling that you have when you become a believer in deity or when you have that kinship with deity or that divine spark is something you can tap into, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in meditation. They say that it, it relieves that feeling of isolation. Now, there have been times in my life where I've felt isolated, but not because of my lack of faith. Not at all. More because it's the lack of being alone in that faith. When so many people around me I see are struggling with that very primal question, what's it all about? So another aspect of this, as I just alluded to, is the Spirit of God, the God fragment that the Arantia calls the Thought Adjuster. It is given to us upon our first moral choice when we are five years old or six years old, somewhere in that period, when human beings make their first choice, moral choice, whatever that could be, it's almost an unconscious process because at that moment, the thought adjuster, as Bill Sadler explains, imagine a big sheet of paper, and that big sheet of paper is deity. And then you rip off a little piece, and you rip off a little piece, and you rip off another little piece. And all of those little pieces are fragments. They all have God in them. That's what a thought adjuster is. And uh, he explains it here marvelously. Let's see if I can find it. Um, the adjusters are the actuality of the Father's love incarnate in the souls of men. They are the veritable promise of man's eternal career imprisoned within the mortal mind. They are the essence of man's perfected finality or personality, where he can foretaste in time as he progressively masters the divine technique of achieving the living of the Father's will, step by step, through the ascension of universe upon universe, until he actually attains the divine presence of his paradise Father. That's from page 1176. But Bill spoke about the relationship, and by the way, that's a beautiful articulation of what a thought adjuster is. It's, a, it's an actuality of the Father's love. It's that fragment of divinity that is in every single human being. You ever think about that? You're standing in line at a very busy grocery store. There's all this so sounds going on, confusion, beep, 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 and bags being stuffed with carts and the whole thing, people talking. And yet it's all so busy. And have you ever noticed, just step back and you're in line waiting, Try to conceive for a moment that every single one of those persons has a thought adjuster, a fragment of God in them, and they most of them don't even know it. 
Or if they do know it, they're not thinking about it. It's not something that they consciously try to stay aware of throughout their day. Or maybe they do. Who who am I to say? But the fact is that every one of those human beings, no matter how busy they are, no matter who they are, have that spirit fragment in them. And that's the commonality of the human experience, is that we all have that father fragment. It is that unity that brings us together. And that's how the, the brotherhood can never happen without the fatherhood. If you don't acknowledge the the unity of deity in each of us, how can you celebrate the brotherhood of that? You have to have one in order to have the other. To try to have the brotherhood, what are you basing it on? What, what, what's the unifying factor? Is it a constitution, perhaps? Is it a ethnic or cultural or religious uh, belief system? An ideology, perhaps? P- possible. But is that really brotherhood? Or is it just a uni- unity of belief, not a uniformity of belief, as opposed to a unity, which still allows you to be free? So I want to read what Bill says about thought adjusters. And it's so great. He says, I'm interested in getting as much help from my partner, thought adjuster, as I can. I feel rather different about discussing my problems with an infinite God, even though in my heart and my mind I know he's got all the time in the world for me. But somehow it seems presumptuous. He's running a big universe, and it seems to me that there are so many other things he could be more profitably spending his time on. But I don't feel this way about this thought adjuster. Because this thought adjuster is God individuated for me. And I am his business. For this particular assignment, I am his principal concern. He may have peripheral activities going on, but they're definitely secondary to me just as you are primary to the function of your thought adjuster. He goes on to say, I have no hesitancy about discussing anything with this thought adjuster. I have a feeling of comradeship for him. And let me explain. I've never heard him say anything to me. If I ever did, it would probably scare me quite out of my wits, and I would immediately feel this as paranoia, you know? And I would put this whole thing on ice and think about it for quite a number of weeks or months until my human judgment could evaluate it or until a little more time passed. And yet I've never doubted that this is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between two conscious beings, one of whom is deaf. I I can talk, but I can't hear. And I don't let my deafness impair my faith in the least. I keep asking my partner for help and certain directions. How can I be more useful? How, how can I be better at my job with coping with my ego? This belligerent self that I'm not sure I've conquered at all. And if I were sure, then I'd be afraid of that concept too. I fear this was spiritual pride, you know, which get, goes hell, or as he says, which goeth before a hell of a crash. I try to tell my partner about what life is like down here. There's a whole lot that he doesn't get out of this world because he doesn't have eyes, you know. He doesn't have ears. He has a sensory mechanism, but it's quite different from mine. I know he's trying to tell me about paradise. I tell him about this world, what it means to me. 
When we get to a new city, I kind of let them see the city through my eyes. We talk about this. I probably spend more time talking to him in the privy than any other single place on earth because there's one place I am sure to be alone. It's when I occasionally ride trains in the bedroom. One is alone. But that's not because I, that's not just because I love my thought adjuster. I happen to be a creature who needs periodic solitude. This is temperamental. I think if I'm going to be able to live more of this, he's got to help me. He's got to help me be less of a mammal and more human. The heck with being more spiritual. This is for the future. I'm concerned if I could just become less mammal and more human. I'm not trying to be a frog. I think about frogdom, but I'm a tadpole right now. I'm not trying to get out on dry land. I wouldn't live. I've got to live in water. I'll wake up on dry land. I asked my partner, how can I be of more service? Because in my religion, there's none of this. My religion is very, very simple. Somewhere at the center of all things is the boss. And these odd creators I bump into down here on earth are the boss's kids. And they should be treated accordingly. That's my religion. I can say it in three sentences. My partner's interested in this because he comes from the boss. He understands that these are the boss's kids, and I'm sure he'll help me in every way he can. I have no doubts about this. The thing that dismays me is my own inconstancy, this mammalian inertia. Not that I do evil or sinful things, but I don't do enough. It's not that I dwell on sinful thoughts, but I forget to deal with the boss and my partner. Yet the book tells me that God can look on the inside of me and see that dismay and dismal picture which I know about, and he still loves me. So those are the words of Bill Sadler Jr. in describing his relationship with his fragment of God. I found it completely moving, and I, and I again thank uh, Sue Wallowa for writing a great book. If you have an opportunity to read it, it is called Dr. Sadler and the Arantia Book. So we'll, uh, we'll come back after this brief music interlude, and we'll read some letters from listeners, and then we'll close out the rest of the show. Radio podcast. One thing I want to mention before, if you ever want to write something to me, let me know. It's so easy to get in touch with me. It is urantiabookradio at gmail.com. I usually try to respond. Uh, I almost always respond. If I don't respond, it's probably because maybe it got in my junk mail. You know how that is. Anyway, so I, I want to kind of go through these because I get quite a few 
we're uh, we're growing. One of the things I really learned about the uh, which you know Sue Oliva's book reminded me is that we are part of something that's uniquely special. Nobody's trying to form a new church or a new religion. This is what makes the Urantia book so unique. You can, uh, you can. It's maybe it's kind of like an ambassador. You bring it into your home. You learn from it, but it, you can still practice your own faith. If you're a Christian, it takes nothing away from your love for Christ or your relationship with Christ. Nothing whatsoever. Um, it does not uh, interfere at all with the beautiful truths, uh, the inspired word of, of God. The Bible, uh, you can be you can be Islam Islamic. I mean, if your religion will allow you to seek truth where the truth will lead, and if it leads you to the Arantia Papers, then doesn't if it benefits you, then it benefits you, and that's what we're here to share with everyone. Because the days of organized religion may someday come to an end, because the purpose it's supposed to serve is fellowship. That's the only purpose for organized religion is to give people who share in their belief of, of deity a place to worship collectively and then to go about doing good things. That's it. It's not supposed to run a government. It's not supposed to run an industry. It's not supposed to... It's only supposed to inspire the individual to, go, to do God's will, which is to serve your fellow man in the best way possible. At least that's what the Arantia book teaches. That's what Christianity teaches. That's what I think it teaches. So anyway, letters from listeners. This one from Mike. He says, The topic of race is a sensitive one. If there is a superior, if there is a superior race today, it is the yellow race, as evidenced by their embrace of education and the importance of the family unit. Meanwhile, the black race as a whole has neglected education, especially on the part of males, and black males have notoriously neglected parental responsibility. We are all on a ladder to reach perfection, and there should be no shame in accepting where we are. But for the black race to advance, they need to emulate the yellow race. Hmm. I'm not sure why he did all this, but uh, anyway, I, I think he uh, he thinks it's, it's an important topic. And I, w- I would tell you this, I would tell you this. And it brings up uh, Sue Oliver's book because she brings up the whole uh, issue of eugenics and a lot of the writings that the Arantia book contains, most of it having to do with the process in the early days of, of an evolving species like ourselves. So if we go back, for example, and I'll give you a good example, there's a reason that there are no longer any Neanderthals today. That was race purification. The Neanderthals showed up on the human stage a half a million years before modern human. So if you want to talk about indigenous, the Neanderthals were really the predominant uh, species uh, from about 250,000 to about 750,000 back in time, 1,000 years, maybe even more. In recent studies, they have shown that there is a particular genetic sequence of the Neanderthal, which it's found its way into a, a good percentage of modern humans, which means at one point our ancestors probably commingled with this group. And why wouldn't they? They're humans. 
But the Neanderthals didn't last because they weren't intellectually able to keep up. And as species tend to do, they tend to eliminate the inferior strains or the inferior group. And Darwin's survival of the fittest tells us that in most of cases, what ends up happening is the ones that are, are the, the most acute, the most intelligent, or the most brutal, tend to survive. doesn't mean that they evolve. It doesn't mean that they're morally right. It just means that they exist. And it is from those fruits, I suppose, that you could say that modern man evolved. Uh, from the Neanderthal, which was an improvement upon the Denisovans, which were much shorter in stature, um, and, and, and much more pacific, pacific. And so they didn't eliminate them because the Denisovans moved north and the Neanderthals didn't like the cold weather. That's why they spread out all over Eurasia and the warmer regions of, of Mesopotamia and down through China. And they were great warriors, but they didn't last. So when the Arantia book talks about the old days of racial purification, and they don't use that term, by the way. I'm using it now because it's the easiest way to say it. What they're saying is that there was a period of time where there was a certain amount of, of elimination of inferior stock. But it wasn't a complete process because uh, we didn't get the guidance that we needed in those early stages. In the, and we're talking when there were only maybe a few million people on the planet. And that was a long time ago. So I think today when we try to have an argument about different races and who's this and who's better at that, you can't have that conversation for a couple of reasons. One, because we all, uh, most of us have at least two or three different racial amalgamations within our DNA. You know, I, I have a Northern European descendancy, but within that, I know from the Arantia teachings that that also includes a little bit of red and a little bit of yellow. Arabs today have a slightly more or a higher mixture of indigo. The yellow race is probably the most pure in terms of genetic integrity uh, because it, it mixed least, at least in the later period, with the other tribes or the other colored races. And that's what the Arantia book is trying to explain is where did each of these races go and what's the reason that we have races? What, what's the differential between the races that brings about a better society down the road? So it, but it's hard to have that conversation today because we're just emerging out of a, a fairly brutal period of human existence. So brutal, in fact, that we had slaves, and slaves have been in existence for almost as long as humans have been in existence. But we got to see it up close because it was only just recent. And we don't like what we see, and a lot of people are still angry about it, and I get that. But the important thing is we, we've taken a lot of good steps in the right direction. But there's still slavery. Today there's still slavery. So uh, to, to Mike, I would say I don't think that, that it's an important conversation to have now because we're still working out our differences. The important thing is, is race harmony. What are the things that bring us together? And, and, and I often say this when it comes to American history, and I get these teachings from the Urantia book. The fact is, is that America, the American way, the American dream, is, it was built by a lot of different colored hands. 
and a lot of different cultures. And that's what makes it such a great country. It's the plurality of belief that makes us so strong. Uh, we, we do truly represent those people who value freedom and liberty and prosperity and self-determination because they want to live that way and they're willing to do anything they can to achieve it. And that is character. That There is something about that kind of character. If you were complacent and it wasn't that important to you, you would stay in your country. You wouldn't try to leave a place like Cuba or Haiti. You would just acquiesce. You would just give in. So even in the type of people that we attract are people who, who want to live a better life. And they want to live a better life because they have God in them and they want to be a better person. And they want to, they want to experience things that you and I experience and take for granted. So anyway, that's my answer to that. Uh, from Denver, second email. In my view of current science, it makes far too many assumptions about space when it starts with a false assumption that the Big Bang is an uncaused random event. When you start with that premise, you can't explain order, and order cannot be derived from random causation. They are mutually exclusive. They, there is either order or there is not. That's an email I had. I think we were talking about this, the Webb, the James Webb Telescope. And this reader is right. Um, you, you can't have random causation and attain, attainment perfection. <clears throat> The, what is it, the second law of thermodynamics says that uh, from order comes chaos. Everything eventually breaks down. But that seems to be opposite of progressive evolution. In fact, they seem like they're contradictory events, that they would be normally mutually exclusive. But see, you and I, because we've been exposed to the Arantia book, understand that there was no such thing as an uncaused cause, that God is the only uncaused cause. And with God, there is order. And there's purpose in the universe. And this is uh, displayed in a cell that, that heals itself to a human that decides it wants to get a raise. Same thing. They want to improve. They want to be better. I, uh, be, be perfect even as I am perfect. <clears throat> Says, uh, next letter. I just got a couple more. Hello, I've been listening to your podcast for some time and love what you're doing. I'd love to see if you have any episodes to talk about uh, the debunked chapters of the book. I'm a Urantia book reader since 04, and I've never heard any facts or, or of anything being debunked. I've heard that some of the science is different, but never anything factual. Thank you, and I'm in no rush for your answer. Thank you. I did respond, and there are early, earlier articles, I think, if you go back to the first 10 or so podcasts, there's things we talk about, uh, particularly with science and astronomy. The George Parks interview is real good about that. There are, you know, look, there are a lot of things that are that are challenged in the Arantia papers. If I had to make a list, it would be a very long list. But um, most of the stuff that's been predicted uh, or ended up becoming true outweighs any of the minor inconsistencies that you might find. And that's something that the longer you read the book, the more you realize the book is mostly right. It mostly contains things that are true or are about to be true. And finally, there's one more. This one from Nancy. <clears throat> if there was one topic that I would like to hear discussed, it would be helpful to know how we are to share this good news, especially if it's possible to do so with Christians, because the theological doctrines are so deeply ingrained. I often wonder how I can approach someone and share the Arantia book. 
because there is so much to share. And uh, we are going to talk about that, and we're going to enlist the aid of Bill Sadler to do that very thing. In the next episode, I'm going to take some time this week and go through some of the archival material you'll find on the Fellowship website. There's some old archival Bill Sadler tapes, and uh, I'm going to let him sort of tackle that issue of how we are faced with that challenge of of approaching uh, Christians about this book, or even if we should. And that's something that Bill is going to help me address in a forthcoming episode of the Arantia Radio Podcast. As you can tell, my voice is getting a little froggy, so this is a good time to end it. Again, thank you for joining me on this special uh, labor of love. And uh, my email address, Radio at gmail.com. Radio at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless, and thanks for joining me on the Arantia Radio Podcast. <laughs>